You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Health Podcast. And I have Douglas Sordo. He's the chief medical officer at a company called Caladrius Biosciences. Their website is caladrius.com. It's spelled C-A-L-A-D-R-I-U-S. Doug, thanks for coming. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. Yeah, tell me um, a bit about Caladrius. What's, uh, where does the name come from, first of all? And then what's the premise of the company? Yeah, so the, uh, the name of the company is actually a very nice reflection of our uh, overall vision. Uh, so uh, the the bird uh, from Roman mythology, the uh, Caladrius bird, uh, is a bird that flies in uh, to a person that's sick, absorbs the sickness, and flies away. Uh, so it really does reflect very nicely with a nice image uh, the goal of the company, which is not to manage disease, but to actually restore health. That is the vision of the company uh, that's what our technologies are designed to do, to bring people back to a state of health. Well, that's a lot better than yeah, just treating people in palliative care. So exactly. what, are the, um, yeah, what are the main initiatives of the company right now? Well, so the, uh, it's a really a very exciting time for the company right now because we're in a nice position of having uh, some late-stage programs that have already demonstrated uh, a very nice uh, efficacy in prior clinical studies, and, and the focus is cardiovascular disease. Uh, so, you know, as you know, cardiovascular disease uh, is very prevalent uh, around the world, and especially in the United States and other developed countries. Uh, and we're targeting the sickest of the sick patients uh, with our technologies. So the idea is to take people who have exhausted all the available therapies, bypass surgery, angioplasty, stenting, medicines, cholesterol lowering, you name it. They've done it all and they're still disabled. Uh, and what we've been able to show in prior studies of our technologies uh, is that a single dose of our therapies does what, just what I alluded to, uh, makes people better long term. Um, and, you know, we're in a stage now where we're performing uh, a pivotal study in Japan for people with what's called critical limb ischemia. 
that is limb-threatening ischemia. So the the uh, patient has some gangrene or or severe pain all the time, uh, which is a, you know a harbinger of a future need for an amputation. Uh, and that's in a pivotal trial that we expect to complete enrollment this year. And if that study goes the way that prior studies go, we expect that to be an approved product in Japan. So the other uh, pivotal program here in the United States uh, is for patients who have unremitting chest pain called angina. So it's due to a, a lack of blood supply to the heart. Uh, the patient is able to do little or no activity without being stopped by chest pain. Uh, and again, they've exhausted everything that's available and are still disabled. Uh, and in general, these are middle-aged patients. The average age of patients we've enrolled in our studies are around 62 years old. Um, and prior studies have shown that a single dose of our product uh, results in improved exercise capacity, reductions in chest pain, and actually improved longevity. So the patients live longer. So starting with um, with limb ischemia, what what causes it? It causes it to progress to the point where a limb is amputated, and then you know, let's talk about it. What's the mechanism by which your product helps? Sure. So the uh, so this critical limb ischemia is the end stage of peripheral artery disease, which is actually relatively common. You know, by the time people are in their 60s or 70s, around 10 to 15 percent of people have some disease, we'll just call it blockages, in the arteries that supply their legs uh, with blood. Critical limb ischemia is the extreme of that condition. So they have many blockages such that the blood supply to the leg is extremely limited. Uh, and it results in either pain, you know, we've all sat wrong on our leg and the leg falls asleep and then it starts to hurt. Well, that's what those patients feel like all the time. Uh, and they need to take narcotics for pain relief just so they can get some sleep at night. Or as I said, they start to have some gangrene or tissue loss uh, and, and that can really, you know, unravel and uh, lead to the need for, for amputation. Our therapy in both cases is very interesting in that it's a naturally occurring vascular as blood vessel repair cell. So the CD34 cell uh, was shown by research that was done in, in, in my lab around 20 years ago uh, to have this natural ability to build new blood vessels in areas uh, where the blood vessels have been lost or damaged. Uh, and so, you know, you could almost say this wasn't really so much of an invention. It's not like we invented a drug, but simply made an observation that no one had made before about the ability of these naturally occurring cells to grow new blood vessels. So it's a, you know, so-called angiogenic mechanism of action. And interestingly, uh, you know, when we started this, this work, we thought that, you know, we were, we would be doing you know, many studies to figure out proper dosing and so forth. But as we started treating patients, we found that, you know, if we gave a sufficient dose, a single administration of the cells targeted into the area where blood flow needed to be improved resulted in very dramatic improvements uh, in symptoms uh, and, and all the benefits that you would hope for in these different conditions. Are these, so are these cells that I think they call them autologous, you're removing them from the patient through blood draw, exactly. you're culturing them and then putting them back in? Correct. We're not even culturing them. Uh, so we, uh, we concentrate the cells. So we do something to mobilize these cells. The CD34 cells mainly live, if you will, 
in the bone marrow. That's kind of their home, and that's where they're in the highest concentration. To get a sufficient dose, we give the patients a medicine that mobilizes those cells, perform a procedure. It's called apheresis. It simply collects the white blood cells without removing any red blood cells, collects white blood cells, and then we purify the white blood cells down to the CD34 fraction which is a, it's a small percentage, but we're able to give, get a pretty high number of these cells and concentrating them, put them into a special suspension medium that makes the cells potent and then deliver them into the target tissue. And for critical limb ischemia, it's, it's really basically an outpatient procedure where the cells are injected into the lower leg of the patient. And then in the uh, refractory chest pain patients, the cells are actually directly injected into the heart muscle, which is where they're needed to build the new blood vessels. So these, these cells um, help to induce angiogenesis and create new pathways, new vessels? Correct. Yep. So the, uh, you know, the initial observation okay. in the laboratory suggested uh, that that uh, was a, a capability of these cells. Obviously, we did a large number of preclinical studies before we started any, any human trials to establish that, in fact, uh, these cells, when delivered into tissues like the heart or the leg that had been robbed of their blood supply, that those cells would stimulate new blood vessel growth, would improve blood flow, uh, and, and alleviate the condition that we call ischemia when there's a lack of oxygenated blood. Blood. Well, since these cells are present in the body, present in the body, it would seem like the body's doing this just not at a, um, a significant enough level. I would bet the body is trying to repair any ischemia always. So why is it yep. that the body doesn't do this normally? Why do you have to boost it by concentrating these cells? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, and, um, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, we've observed, you know, as, as clinicians, we'd make the observation, you know, one patient comes in with some blockages and, you know, maybe you do an angioplasty or a stent and they go home and they're fine. They're out, you know, playing basketball or tennis or whatever. Another patient comes in with what looks like the same exact anatomy of the vessels. You do the same procedure, and for some reason they, they get worse, they deteriorate, they become disabled. So there's something about the difference in the native biology of those patients, their ability to naturally recruit and deploy those cells that has failed. And we don't yet understand the mechanisms because, of course, if we did, right, that would be a better solution, right? Figure out who are the, you know, the patients who've got a broken CD34 system and figure out the way to get those cells to behave the way they do in patients who are able to repair themselves. We haven't figured that out yet. Uh, and so, you know, we're taking the very direct approach of saying, okay, well, somehow these patients aren't mobilizing and recruiting these cells the way they should. So we're going to do it for them while we're still trying to figure out, you know, the mechanisms that have failed that really would allow us, I think, to undertake a, a preventative strategy. We're not there yet, uh, but I think we will figure out at some point why patients fail to uh, use these cells the way that they were, you know, it looks like pre-installed by the manufacturer. That's what they were supposed to do, but somehow these patients aren't leveraging that biology. What about the nature of the new vessels created? I've, I, I don't even know where. I'm just pulling this out of thin air, but I seem to remember reading that when blockages happen or you know you get a constriction, 
and new vessels form that they're of a different nature. They may not be as strong. They may be weaker and more prone to, um, you know, to rupture. Right. Or is that the uh, case? Or are you uh, seeing new vessels that are perfect? <laughs> I'm impressed. That's uh, you know, you're 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 going deep into the scientific literature, um, oh, and you. Uh, you know that uh, that literature that you're citing was was mostly done. You know, it is angiogenesis research. It was mainly done around the use of specific genes, gene therapy to stimulate new blood vessel growth. And the implication was that those vessels, like you just said, are more fragile or maybe leaky uh, and so on and so forth. Those, I would say, parenthetically, were done in some animal models that really, I don't think, had a lot of fidelity for what we're doing. But apart from that, you know, the evidence that we have using these cells is that the vessels that are formed are durable behave normally, result in improved blood flow. And this is in the preclinical models where you can take the, you know, the organ out and, and examine the vessels and so on and so forth. So using the cells to stimulate new blood vessels uh, seems to result in a different type of vessel formation than, than trying to pick specific genes to, to stimulate new blood vessel growth. And then I think, you know, really more importantly, obviously from a clinical standpoint, you know, we have two-year follow-up in a lot of these patients. In some cases, in some of the critical limb ischemia studies that were done, four-year follow-up. And, and that, to me, is the most exciting thing, is that these patients get one dose of their own cells deployed into a target tissue, and two to four years later, they're still better. So the implication there, obviously, is that whatever blood vessels are formed uh, by uh, a dose of these cells seem to be quite stable and continue. And, and really, you know, if you look at some of this data, uh, that's been generated, especially in the in the cardiac patients. So if you if you measure symptoms, chest pain symptoms, and patients treated in these blinded studies, you know, two years after single administration, not only is the chest pain better in the treated patients than controls, but the difference between treated and control subjects seems to be getting greater over time. You know, which sort of suggests that you give a dose of the cells. And we know they take up long-term residence, not a lot of them, but a percentage of the cells that are put in there take up long-term residence and seem to be stimulating an ongoing repair process. And the same thing when we look at mortality. The mortality curves, you know, if you, if you do, say, you know, bypass surgery on somebody, you know, after you get past the post-operative period, you know, you can see that there's a, a difference in mortality in, in uh, properly selected patients who get bypassed. But then over time, that difference wanes. When we look at these at, at the patients we've enrolled, those mortality curves are diverging at two years, so they're getting further apart. So, you know, the implication is that whatever process is triggered by deploying these natural repair cells seems to be long-lasting. You know, we still need to do even longer follow-up. You know, we'd like to do, you know, five-year follow-up on, on our next round of patients, but, you know, so far, so good. It seems to be that we're, we're developing very durable functional vessels. Have you tried um, injecting sites that are, you know, I guess, quote, unquote, normal? Does this, yes. Does this <laughs> go, a great does, question. Yeah, does this, yeah. Yeah, because you know, I can think athletes would be like, oh, inject this into my yeah. heart. I want a super hard. Yeah, so, know. I mean, I, I don't want to dis disappoint Lance Armstrong or anything like that, but, you know, if you put these cells into normal, healthy, well-functioning tissue, they don't, they, they disappear very quickly, you know, because they're, you know, it's, you know, again, we're just re leveraging natural biology. So these cells were built to repair blood vessels or damage, damaged tissue that needs a better blood supply. They very quickly can sense if there's, if there's ischemia, if there's a lack of oxygenated blood, they migrate toward it. 
and they stick around. If there's no ischemia, and we've, you know, we did these experiments because we wanted to see, you know, how the cells behave. You deploy these cells into normal, uh, well-perfused tissue, they disappear and go right back to the bone marrow. Well, if you have a, a patient, let's say that's, um, I don't know, 70, they're probably going to have, like you said, some level of ischemia in many parts of their body. Have, I don't know, is it even ethical or would you be able, would someone like that be able to request and say, hey, I like, um, you know, six or seven injection sites around my body in small amounts <laughs> to tune me up and make me young again? Yeah, yeah you know, um, no, you couldn't do that, I don't think. Uh, you know, I certainly wouldn't do it. Um, and, and I don't think there would even be a rationale for it. You know, I think that uh, we know these cells will fix ischemic tissue. And as I said, we, we've really targeted our development efforts so far on the sickest of the sick. So in patients who've got really bad chest pain or heart failure or critical limb ischemia uh, or other forms of ischemic disease where nothing's working, those are the folks that we've, uh, that we've concentrated on so far with a very consistent track record. You know, I mean, I think that across multiple indications now uh, in properly selected patients with real ischemia, these cells have yet to have a failure in which they did not show evidence of bioactivity. And of course, safety, you know, we're using the patient's own cells. And so, you know, it's, it's, sure, it's almost a given that they're, they're going to be well tolerated. But nevertheless, it's important to point out that the safety track record of these cells is not, not only unblemished, but that the patients who get the cells experience fewer adverse events, fewer hospitalizations, fewer heart attacks, fewer strokes, the whole thing. Uh, so just what you would hope to see uh, when you give a patient a booster dose of cells that are there in the body, it seems, uh, to repair damaged tissue. Hmm. Yeah, I wonder if this should be coupled with uh, with any stent or with any uh, surgery to, you know, balloon angioplasty or anything, just to make yeah. sure that uh, yeah. there's no complications from it or problems. Yeah, you know, look, you know, um, there is discussion about that because one of the one of the concerns when a bypass uh, procedure is done, especially in the legs. You know, you do a bypass surgery in the leg, and the surgeons will tell you that they're, one of their big concerns for survival of, of bypass grafts is what they call outflow. I call it the microcirculation. You know, if there's stagnant blood flow in a graft, then we know that that graft is at a higher risk for thrombosis. So what you just said, the idea of not, not only fixing the big blood vessel, but actually repairing the downstream so that there's, you know, repair of those microvessels that have been damaged, improving blood flow through the graft. You know, there's a rationale to think that that could re lead to better long-term performance of those grafts. Probably is a study that we'll do at mm -hmm. some point because uh, the, the rationale is so solid. Uh, it makes perfect sense. I've, uh, this might be a basic question, but what happens when, uh, you know, let's say you're, you're growing a new vessel. I mean, essentially it dead ends until it connects to the rest of the body or do these new vessels grow just out into like the interstitial tissue uh, you know, no, let's say point. parallel good alongside point. an original one yeah i failed to uh to explain this adequately so the blood vessels that we grow are not the large conduits they are truly the microcirculation uh so the tiny you know capillaries uh that are a big part of all ischemic diseases. When there is blockage of big blood vessels, there is damage to the microcirculation. And, you know, bypassing the big blood vessels certainly is, is helpful and necessary, 
But if the micro, and this is the, you know, sort of the, it goes to the story I was telling before of the, you know, the two patients who have different clinical courses, patients who fail to repair their microcirculation who have ongoing damage to it just get worse. And so these cells are like a network of, of tiny vessels that, um, that merge with each other and, and then merge with downstream vessels that are there. So, you know, the, the, again, the, we're leveraging a natural biology in which these cells know how to communicate, they crosstalk, they know how to find uh, the tributaries to connect to. Uh, and, and so it's not like, you know, a, a giant tube that needs to find its way to another tube to, to hook up to. It's really a, a, these tiny, tiny vessels that are so important. You know, if you, you know, the analogy I use is, you know, if, if um, if there were if there were no side streets, you know, nobody would be able to get home at night. If all you had were interstate highways, you know, it would be really hard to get around. And so right. we're fixing the side streets and the driveways. Well, I'm, so I'm imagining in my mind a vessel that's, you know, nearly completely clogged. Um, and the microvasculature, like you said, you know, is like starving, you know, downstream of it because it's not getting enough blood. And the heart probably has to, well, the whole system's blood pressure probably has to drastically increase in order to force enough blood through there. And then once you put in a stent or you open it up, now all of a sudden it's like this gush of, of blood going into maybe damaged, you know, microvascular tissue. Maybe that's why some people have a problem because maybe this sudden gush of blood and this, uh, you know, the pressure maybe hasn't stabilized. Maybe it finishes destroying the microvasculature that was damaged yeah. and it needs new stuff to, to fix. I'm just... <laughs> Wants them out of thin air, but it's just something to consider. No, no. Look, I mean that that what you just described is actually a you know that that sort of dramatic example of what you just described does happen. Fortunately, it's relatively rare, but it is one of the things that surgeons worry about, uh, or or you know, peripheral interventionists worry about is you know if I if I open up a giant vessel and provide this head of pressure down into the tissue. Uh, is it going to cause problems? And occasionally it does. The patients will develop a compartment syndrome, uh, and it can really be a, a very difficult situation. Most of the time, fortunately, uh, you know, actually m most of the time in those patients who have severe peripheral disease, uh, you know, when you're doing a bypass, you're actually, I mean, you're obviously improving blood flow, but not to the dramatic extent uh, that, you know, I think you're imagining uh, that you cause that damage. But it, but it, it can and does happen. Fortunately, it's rare. Well, it seems like um, you know your your solution should be maybe preemptive or before. Let's say someone has a blockage if they don't need to immediately have it addressed. You know, what if they were to use your protocol beforehand uh -huh. to grow some new microvasculature? So when it's opened up, there's not such a uh, dramatic change now, and you know, like you said, the pressure and the volume of blood flowing. Yeah. No. Look, I mean, I think when I've started to talk to. Uh, vascular interventionists and surgeons about this. This is exactly what we're talking. Uh, a dose of cells first, uh, wait a few months to let those cells start to work their magic on the microcirculation, and then one of two things will happen, right? Either the patient's completely better, right? Pain's gone, ulcers are healed, gangrene's gone, in which case you, you stand down. Or if there still is, if there's improvement, but not complete recovery, then go ahead with the bypass operation. But yeah, you've kind of set the stage for a more successful operation. I think, you know, that's, uh, that's exactly the lines that we're thinking along. And, and you guys have gone to Japan because from also from what I've heard, they have a fast track program to approval for a certain kind of uh, medical interventions like this, right? 
Yeah, that's right. So Japan, you know, in the wake of the uh, Nobel Prize going to uh, Yamanaka for the uh, discovery of the IPS uh, cell, or not discovery of it, but, you know, inventing the IPS cell, if you will, uh, Japan became very interested in, in identifying itself as a regenerative medicine epicenter for the world. Uh, and so they, they changed the regulatory rules uh, for the approval of, of, of regenerative medicine products. RCE 34 cell is clearly regenerative medicine. Uh, and, and then on top of that, I would say that, um, uh, you know, during my academic career, a lot of the uh, postdoctoral fellows that, uh, that I worked with uh, were from Japan, just by coincidence. And in fact, the, the doc, uh, the postdoc who, in, you know, really made the seminal discovery about the CE34 cell was also from Japan. And so there was actually a lot of momentum in Japan uh, to, to perform this development program. Some studies on CLI had already been done. And so there, was, there were a lot of reasons why Japan made sense. Now, interestingly, of course, since that time, the U.S. Has, and Europe uh, have tried to create their own systems for accelerated approval of regenerative medicine. So in the United States, the 21st Century Cures Act and the whole RMAT designation uh, were created. Uh, our, our program for uh, refractory angina uh, has been designated uh, with the RMAT designation. Uh, and so that's one of the uh, one of the tools that we're now leveraging here in the United States. But yeah, the reason to go in Japan was because they were they were ahead of the rest of the world by about four years. That's great. Um, are there any? Um, I, I don't remember the name of the uh, cell. I think you said it was CD34 or CD38 cell. What was the name? CD34. Yep, 34. CD34. Are there any other um, functions that this cell has that you guys have figured out that could uh, maybe be at odds or complement what you're doing? <laughs> Well, you know, it's really interesting. If you if you're just walking down the street and say to the man on the street uh, or the woman on the street, "Hey, do you know do you know about these C34 cells?" Uh, if anybody answers you, uh, they're probably going to say, "Oh, yeah, that's the hematopoietic stem cell," which it is. Uh, C34 cells. When you get a stem cell transplant, you know, if you've had your bone marrow wiped out with chemotherapy or radiation for cancer, uh, and you get a stem cell transplant to reconstitute hematopoiesis. It's the CD34 cell that does that. So it is a true stem cell. That is that uh, it can do multiple things, you know, if you will, when it grows up. One of the things that the CD34 cell can do in certain contexts is uh, reconstitute all the elements of the blood. But another, another function that it has is to build the, the, the tubes, if you will, that carry the blood. And this is, you know, pretty typical in embryology that parts of the organism that reside next to each other or are related in some way often come from a common precursor. And so this is an example of that where the blood and the tubes that carry the blood derive from a common uh, stem cell, and that's the CD34 cell. Um, we don't, you know, some people have asked, you know, do these cells do reconstitute other things, like might they make heart muscle cells when you put them in the heart, or might they make skeletal muscle cells when you put them in, in the into the skeletal muscle of the leg you know i mean uh, i would like for that to be true and and we tried to uh find evidence that that was the case but really we could never convince ourselves that they did anything more than uh building blood vessels um so at least that's as far as we know right now how about for um for cancer i know that you know cancer microenvironment can be hypoxic and this could cause cancer to uh you know, to induce angiogenesis on its own. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. sure. 
Yeah. You know, no, look, I mean, I think that's a very important, uh, very important question. Uh, you know, I started out life, uh, you know, when I was doing therapeutic development, uh, you know, earlier on, it was gene therapy. Uh, and people were worried about, very worried about using uh, gene therapy to stimulate angiogenesis. And, and, you know, here you have companies developing VEGF, you know, vascular endothelial growth factor blocking drugs to treat cancer. And, and here we are, a bunch of cardiologists figuring out ways to try to increase VEGF expression uh, in cardiovascular disease. And it was, you know, so question about, you know, are you going to uh, progress cancer, cause cancer, or, you know, eye disease, you know, retinopathy, proliferative retinopathy. And, you know, over the years, we've been very, very studious and careful about you know, monitoring patients, excluding patients who we think are at risk, et cetera, et cetera. We've uh, never seen any increase in um, in cancer. In fact, you know, in the pre before we started doing this stuff in patients, we asked the question in some animal models. You know, we would put a you know cancer into an animal uh, and then give them uh, you know VEGF or C34 cells uh, and see if the cancer got worse. And, it, you know, even the animal models, we couldn't see any evidence of that. That doesn't mean it, it couldn't happen, but at least we were never able to generate any evidence that it was happening. We still watch very carefully and remembering that we're, we're treating patients who are really at the end of the road, uh, the sickest of the sick. And so, um, you know, we're trying to, to keep an eye on the balance of risk and benefit, even though, you know, as I said, we've not seen any, uh, any increased risk of cancer in these patients, we'll, we'll still be very careful with our surveillance. You talk to the cancer docs, and, 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 and some of them have done some of this, these experiments too. And I think, you know, as much as angiogenesis is a factor in some cancers in helping them to grow and spread and so forth, cancer is, you know, much more sophisticated disease than just blood vessel growth, right? There's other, other features that have to be present in order for a cancer to really blossom. And so, you know, I think fortuitously for us, we've not seen any, any evidence, but it's something we're always going to keep our eye on. There'll be a lot of post-marketing surveillance to see if that's the case. Because, you know, if, if we're going to start carrying this, you know, further back into patients in earlier stages of disease, you know, we're going to have to make sure that we're not causing any downstream problems. And these patients with end-stage disease about to have a leg amputated or crippled with chest pain, you know, I think uh, people are going to be more willing to take a risk of some long-term consequences in that setting. If you start talking about really more preventative uh, type strategies, then your, you know, your your risk tolerance is going to be lower. And so we're just going to have to keep monitoring and, and collecting data to make sure that we're not doing anything that has a long-term implication that's, that's negative. Yeah, actually, I was just about to ask you about this. I'm sure there's going to be pressure from people that are less sick and eventually all the way up the scale to, you know, again, people that are healthier athletes that want an edge, but even, even people that are less sick that are not at the very end stages, they're going to want this help. So how do you respond to that need that, how is this, is this going to follow some kind of path or morph in time to be used for more and more people at more stages? Only, uh, only if we, uh, you know, look, I mean, I'm obviously very interested in exploring, ways that these cells could be used therapeutically and, and, and hopefully that means even at earlier stages so people don't get into hot water like critical ischemia or heart failure. Uh, but the only way that we're going to be able to advance those 
those types of ideas is through clinical trials, you know. So um, that's all. That's, we've been very rigorous about, you know, performing these studies in, you know, a blinded, randomized way so that when we see something, uh, we know that it's valid. And, you know, we're excited about uh, exploring other indications, but it's going to it's going to have to be in the context of doing uh, careful uh, clinical studies. Yeah, have you seen anything else that people can do to encourage this to happen at least somewhat on their own to you know to to fix ischemias? Mm. You know, any diet or exercise correlations or other things that you, know, can do? you know, I mean, I think that that uh, so exercise does increase your CD thirty four counts in your in your circulation. Uh, that's been shown. Uh, and there are some dietary maneuvers, but you know I would say that it's it's not uh, it's not at the point where I would prescribe it, right? So people have made observations about certain foods that may be associated with increasing C34 counts. That doesn't mean that the, you're going to have better vascular repair. So I think it's you know it's something that we'll we'll look at, uh, but I think there's really nothing more than very casual observational data at this point uh, to go by, which isn't much. And yeah, do we understand the signaling that goes on in an area that you know is becoming ischemic to signal yeah. the CD34 to be uh, to be released and brought to that site? Yeah. So the beacon, if you will, for CD34 cells seems to be uh, SDF1 or stromal-derived factor one, uh, and the receptor on the CD34 cell is called CXCR4. Uh, it's a chemokine receptor. And so SDF1 expression is increased in ischemic tissue, uh, and and so the CD34 cells expressing CXCR4 are home into that tissue, and it, and it seems to tether them there. That's that's what seems to get those cells to hang around uh, in ischemic tissue. Uh, you know, the, if you will, the magic of how the CD34 cells do what they do is still being understood. I think the beauty of of cells. Two things. One is that they have an array of mechanisms at their disposal, uh, so they're not limited. You know, back like I said, I started out doing gene therapy, and we would pick one gene and overexpress it and see if that had a therapeutic effect. The cells aren't limited in that way; they can make a lot of stuff. Uh, and and the more we study, the more we learn that they're capable of doing. VEGF is but one of the things that these cells secrete. They secrete exosomes, which are little like photon torpedoes of information, including microRNAs and RNA and proteins and so forth. The C34 cell exosomes seem to play a role in their ability to stimulate new blood vessel formation. So we're still, you know, really trying to unravel all the mechanisms. Um, does that mean that we could figure out how to make sort of an artificial concoction uh, that imitates? Uh, C34 cells biology? Maybe. Although, you know, the thing that's really hard to model is that once the cell is in the tissue, uh, it's interacting with the tissue environment, uh, as you were saying before, talking about cancer. Uh, and so it can change its repertoire of things that it's secreting or doing in a way that I think would be virtually impossible to decipher. You know, certainly you're never going to be able to figure that out in a patient and, you know, whether or not Figuring it out in an animal is relevant, I think, is, is somewhat questionable. But, um, you know, but we are gradually peeling back the onion, figuring out, you know, what it is that these cells do that makes them, you know, so good at, at improving blood flow. Okay. Well, very good. What's, um, 
I know I'll question you to death, but <laughs> so what's what's the best way for folks to learn about more, you know, learn more about these um these ongoing trials and I don't know if there's any room for participation, but uh to find out more about Caladrius, how can they do it? Yeah, so that's a very, very good question. So we've been, you know, building uh things on our website and on our social media accounts to inform people about the things that we're doing. Uh and we're working on some other uh, strategies to really get the word out from an educational standpoint, just so people understand, you know, what are we doing? Why are we doing it? What's the science? What's the evidence and so forth? So, uh, there is some, there is some information on our website now. Uh, people can read about our clinical trials on clinicaltrials.gov. And I think there's a lot more to come in the next few months. There'll be much more information out there. Very good. Well, I appreciate you coming on the podcast and, uh, Oh, my pleasure. You know, it's great. Yeah, my pleasure, absolutely. Yeah, yeah it's great, great work you guys questions. are doing. So. Great. Yeah, thank you. Great conversation. So I appreciate it. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves, or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.